This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Glad you're here. And we have a lot of guests here at Christmas time. We always have folks that, uh, that come and join us uh, here for the for the holiday and, and to be with family and to be with friends or just to have Christmas at the beach. I can't imagine a better place to be at Christmas time but then at Nags Head. And if we just could get a little tiny bit of snow on Christmas Eve, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yeah, it ain't going to happen. We're glad you're here and welcome to everybody who is who's with us this morning. We uh, are in the third uh, message uh, Today, uh, third out of four, we're going to wrap this up on Christmas Eve, but uh, in the fullness of time, looking at the promise of Jesus Christ, the promise that God gave of a Savior, and uh, from way back in ancient times, from before the foundation of the world until he arrived in Bethlehem, and to see how that all came to be and see the battle between Satan and God to make it all happen. And so it's a pretty fascinating study. Uh, We are zooming through it. Uh, We only had two weeks last week and today to go through the whole Old Testament. And so we're kind of flying by uh, in a jet plane. So, but I hope you're picking up some things and and, uh, are enjoying what you're learning. To everybody who's asking about my mom, I got, you know, 15 people asked me. I said, I'm just gonna get up and say something. Mom is doing okay. She'll have a test tomorrow on her heart and, uh, and hopefully she'll be coming home either tomorrow uh, or on, on uh, Tuesday. So that's, that's what they say. So thank you for asking. Thank you for praying for her. Um, the coming of Christ to be our Savior was a plan, as I said, that reaches back to even before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It, it goes back farther than that, reaches before creation. And uh, the, the plan was put into motion and first announced, if you will, uh, in the Garden of Eden. But Peter says this about, about that plan in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. He said, for you know that you were redeemed. We've seen that word redeemed in every message so far, and I think that's interesting that, this, that the concept of redemption is all through this Christmas story. You were redeemed. You were paid for by God. You were bought back by God from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers. So where does our our nature to be sinners come from anyway? The Bible says it comes from our fathers. So, uh, you know, you can, you can thank, you know, you moms with little children when they act like they're, they're little uh, monsters, you can look and say to dad, this, this is your problem. This is your, they got this from you, dad. Uh, you inherited this empty way of life from our fathers, not with perishable things. This is talking about redemption. We're not bought with perishable things like, like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, perfect lamb, if you will. He was chosen when, church, what does it say? Before the foundation of the world, but was revealed. He was chosen in eternity past, but was not revealed, Peter says, until the end of the times for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, in our series, we're going back before Bethlehem, we will be in Bethlehem Tuesday night, or Tuesday afternoon, excuse me, Christmas Eve. We'll be in Bethlehem Tuesday, but we're going back to the times before Bethlehem to highlight how this plan was begun on earth and how Satan did everything in his power to stop it. We began last Sunday um, with God's promise to Satan in the Garden of Eden where God said to the serpent, Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman. Now, when God said that, and I'm, a, I'm going to make a, just a, an assumption, I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to assume that Adam and Eve were listening to this conversation between God and the serpent. It's all in the garden. I'm going to put hostility between you, Satan, and the woman. And I'm, I, I'm, I feel fairly certain that Adam and Eve must have thought, as you and I would have thought, the woman being Eve. She, you know, she's the only woman that existed at the time. So she must, he must be talking about her. She's the one that was tempted by him. I want to put hostility between you and the woman, but it wasn't about Eve. 
This is a prophecy of something that's going to happen far in the future. wasn't about Eve, hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will strike your head, the seed, the one that comes from the woman, he will strike your head, you will strike his heel. The Savior would come, supernaturally, born of a virgin, the seed of a woman, not the seed of man, not together, the seed of a woman. He would be born and would crush Satan. That was a long wait, humanly speaking. I don't know about you, but I don't enjoy waiting for things. How about you? I don't like going through the drive through line at the quote-unquote fast food restaurants here in the Outer Banks, you know, because you're going to wait almost all of the time. Have you ever been, any of you ever been to Chick-fil-A? What in the world? Are they geniuses or what, you know? I don't care how long the line is. You're in and through really quickly. They need, the other guys need to learn something from them. I don't like to wait. I don't like to go to the doctor's office for a 2 o'clock appointment, appointment and at 2.35, I'm still waiting for them to call my name. I want, and I, I'm sorry if there's some doctors here this morning. But I'm gonna, I just have come up with this idea. Next time I have to wait 15, 20, 25 minutes, I'm going to hand him a bill when I go in and say, I know what you charge for your time. Here's what I charge for mine, all right, for making me wait. Um, I don't like waiting. Do you? And you know why that is? Because we are by nature naturally impatient people, aren't we? We are. We're impatient. And, uh, and so we don't like to wait. They had to wait a long, long time. Can you imagine waiting 4,000 years for a promise from God to come true? 4,000 years from Genesis to Matthew 1. The Jewish people waited. Last Sunday, we ended with the promise of God to this couple in Mesopotamia. Abram and Sarai, who were there. Modern-day Iraq is where they were from. And God made them a promise, and he said to them in Genesis 12, he said, from you I'm going to bring a nation about. From the two of you, a nation is going to arise, and they're going to be special to me, blessed by me. And from that nation will come one who would be a blessing to all nations. Well, this fellow Abram was promised a son. You're going to have a son, you and your wife, Sarai. And even though they are elderly and they have no children, so Satan once again says, I'm going to do some things to mess this plan up. I'm going to stop this plan. So twice, two times. We're, we're fortunate people when we make a mistake and learn from it, aren't we? You know, so we don't have to repeat it. And, uh, but two times, Abram does this twice, he takes his wife, Sarai, and who is apparently, for her age, very beautiful and young-looking, very attractive woman, and he presents her to um, two pagan kings, two different instances, and says, here's my sister, you can have her to be your wife, in order to save his own neck. Two times he does that. And so God intervenes. God doesn't let that happen. He protects the plan by keeping her from becoming their wife. And Abram tries to convince them. He goes beyond that and there's no son. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what, God. Look, there's not a son been born. Uh, maybe I didn't get this, uh, this idea right about a son. So how about if we enact the tradition that was in their culture at that time, that if you could not produce a son, an heir, then you were allowed to pick from, if you had servants, you were allowed to pick one of your servants to become your adopted son, and then he would be the heir. How about God if we do that? God said, no, no, the, the, the son is going to be from you and your wife. So then she comes up with an alternative plan, Abram's alternative plan God didn't like, and so she says, okay, I got a better idea. She comes up because she thinks, you know what, good grief, I've waited long enough for a baby. So she says, I'm going to just, I know, I'm going to help God out. You ever want to help God out, by the way? <clears throat> let me let you know on a secret about God. <clears throat> he doesn't need any help. All right? God doesn't need my help. I need all of his help that I can get. So but she comes up with a plan. She says, here's, here's what we'll do, Abram. She said, I have this, this young a female handmaiden, and, um, and why don't you go ahead into her and, and, and with her um, have a baby, and maybe that baby, God will be okay with that. So Abraham agrees, and uh, Hagar does have his son, uh, but God says, no, not him. He's not the son of the promise. The son of the promise is you and Sarah's child. Are you thick or what? So 
God then changes his name to Abraham, and the name Abraham means father of many nations. Now, he's had this one son, uh, Ishmael, and he's going to have another son. Turn with me to Genesis 17. Um, If you're using a Bible that's there in a chair, uh, I believe it's on page 13 in your Bible there, Genesis chapter 17, and I want to read a few verses because Abraham is frustrated with, with waiting on God. I'm going to name you father of many nations. Okay, well, that's not happening, God. I don't see any indication of it. And so he questions God's plan. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 15, God said to Abraham, and as for your wife, I've cha- he's changed Abram's name. As for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. Sarah means princess. Ask my daughter Sarah what her name means. She'll be glad to tell you. Sarah means princess. I'm going to call her princess. That's her name now, Sarah. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Have you heard this before, Abraham? Yeah. I'm going to give you a son by her. She will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. And Abraham fell face down. He got down on his face. God's talking to him. And then he started laughing. You can't help God. And it's not a good idea to laugh at God. He starts laughing and he said to himself. Now, please understand when you talk to yourself, someone else can hear every word that you're saying. All right. (laughs) Keep that in mind. He says to himself, Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? And he's laughing because in his mind, the answer is no. She's way past that. So Abraham said to God, you know, if only Ishmael, the son that I had with Hagar, if only Ishmael were acceptable to you, but God said, no, listen to me again. Your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. By the way, God has a sense of humor. Abraham laughed at God. So he says, you're going to name him Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? Laughter. All right? Because every time you call his name as he grows up, you know what you're going to think of? The time you laughed at my plan. You're going to name him Isaac. And I will confirm my covenant, my promise, That I made to you, I will confirm it with him as an everlasting covenant for his future offspring. As for Ishmael, I'm glad you asked me about him. I've I've heard what you've asked me. I will certainly bless him. I will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. And he will father 12 tribal leaders and I will make him into a great nation. But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, not with Ishmael. With Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. So get the nursery ready. Start getting the things and collecting and have a shower and do all those things because a year from now you're going to have a baby boy. I'm reading between the lines. A year from now, I make that promise. And when he finished talking with him, God withdrew from Abraham. Soon the promised son Isaac was born within the year to Abraham and Sarah. And God even tested Abraham's faith in God's promise to him by, as, Abraham, as Isaac grew up, we don't know exactly the age, but he wasn't a child anymore, I don't believe. He was at least a teenager. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him. I want you to build an altar, put him on it, slit his throat, set the altar on fire, and sacrifice him to me. Now, how many of you would think that's a little bit unreasonable? Would you raise your hand? That's a little bit unreasonable. Yeah, most of you get that. that whoa, 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 whoa. This is the one you promised, God. All of us naturally would say, wait, God, I'm having a hard time following your plan here. We waited all these years for this son, the one you promised to be born, and now you're telling me you want me to kill him? But the Bible tells us Abraham went along with it. He took Isaac up to a mountain and and with a servant, left the servant behind. They took the wood. They built an altar. He put Isaac on it. He raised his knife to kill his own son, and God stopped him. No, 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 don't. God was testing his faith. 
God provided, by the way, a ram that was caught in the bushes there and said, go ahead and sacrifice the ram instead. He was testing his faith. But the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham would have done this. He would have gone through with it because of his faith, because Abraham believed even if my son Isaac dies, God has promised that through this young man, nations are going to rise. Through this young man, the promise is going to come. And even if I kill him, I believe God's able to raise him back from the dead. That was the kind of faith he had. Tremendous, tremendous faith Abraham exhibited in that story. He believed after all those years. Here's in your notes, the point is this. With God's promises come the expectation of our belief. God promises us something. He wants us then to act in faith, in belief. After all those years, Abraham still believed. But you know what? Everybody since Adam and Eve's sin of rebellion has been born sinners, you and me. So your next point in the notes, well, you know, they've got Isaac and his descendants, but the problem is it's going to take someone born without the sin nature to make the difference, to be the seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15. Are these guys sinners? Well, they're Abraham's descendants. He's got two sons, Isaac does. He has two sons, one named Jacob and one named Esau. Jacob was the one God chose. They're twins. God chose Jacob to be the one to continue the line that would produce the Savior. But the problem was Esau was the older one. He came out first. So he's the one that's supposed to get the birthright, the inheritance, but God changes things around. And so that, he, that, so that Jacob gets the birthright, and it's going to be through Jacob that the plan comes along. God showed some grace there to them. By the way, Jacob's name later would be changed, like his dad's name was changed, or his grandfather should say, Jacob's name would be changed as well to Israel. He survived, he received the blessing, he produced 12 sons who became the fathers of 12 large families who flourished into 12 tribes that made up one day the nation of Israel. And these sons, if you read their story, you know these are not godly, these 12 sons. In fact, you know the story where they had this, this young son. Uh, the, his, his mom's name was, was, uh, was Rachel. And, and uh, her firstborn son was, became dad's favorite because he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, his other wife, her sister. Again, they're not perfect people. They did not like this favored son. God loved him, or dad loved him best and, and demonstrated that several ways. One way is by making him this glorious coat of many colors that nobody else had. And then he got some dreams, Joseph did, this favored son. He got some dreams and in these dreams, his dreams seemed to indicate that his brothers were gonna bow down to him one day that he was going to be superior to them in some fashion one day. And he shared the dream with his brothers, and they didn't like it. They got mad. They were jealous, so they said, let's get rid of him. And so they dug a pit, threw him into a pit, and along came a caravan of slave traders coming down through, going to Egypt, and they sold their brother into slavery, took his coat of many colors, tore it up, shredded it, killed an, an animal, killed a lamb, and splattered its blood all over the coat, took the coat to Dad and said, Dad, we don't know what happened but apparently Joseph, your favorite, apparently Joseph, your beloved son, was killed by a wild animal, and all we have to show for it is his coat. Of course, broke his, their dad's heart. Not great men. But it was through one of them, we're going to see, that the seed will come. Amazing. God's plan wins out. Years later, the former slave, Joseph, He's miraculously, you read the story in the book of Genesis, he's miraculously risen to the second in command of Egypt under Pharaoh. And back in Palestine, his family are threatened by this widespread famine of starvation. And so they decide to move to Palestine or move to Egypt because in Egypt, the guy who's in control of everything has come up with this plan. This is Joseph to store grain for several years and so that when the famine comes, they'll have plenty to eat. So let's move to Egypt. They have food. So they move back to Egypt and discover who their brother is, that he's the one that they're bowing down to, like in the dream. So they move back and they come under the care of Joseph who kept them alive, who forgave them. Now you fast forward a little bit and, and their dad, the old man Jacob or Israel, 
He's on his deathbed in Genesis 49, and around his deathbed are, are his, his sons, his 12 sons. And, and so he begins to go around the circle with his sons and, and blesses each one of them. But in his blessing, he also gives prophecies of what's going to happen to them. And it's an, amazing, it's an amazing thing what he promised. And he promised, he prophesied that the ruler, the Messiah, would come and he would come through the line of brother Judah. It says in Genesis 49.10, the scepter that the king would hold as he sits on the throne, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah, you're going to produce the king. You're going to produce the Messiah. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes, talking about Christ. And the obedience of the peoples belong to him. So here, and we'll see it in other places in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah is narrowed down some more. It was worldwide. We don't know where he's going to come from. And then it came down to, to Abraham. And then it came down to Isaac. And now it's coming down through Judah, his son, and it's narrowing down to come from this one tribe. And it's interesting, too, in that, that blessing, that prophecy, he said the obedience of the peoples, it's plural, an indication that the Messiah is going to be ruling over not just the Jewish people, but non-Jews will be under his rulership as well. Joseph later would die, um, and his, his death, after his death, uh, they became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And in those 400 years, Satan probably thought, good, I've, I've kind of ended the plan. I've cut it off. But in those 400 years, they multiplied as a people in Egypt, even though they were enslaved, so much so that Pharaoh feared that they would be strong enough and powerful enough to revolt against him and defeat his army and leave. So he comes up with a plan, no doubt satanically inspired, he comes up with a plan and he goes and says, orders all the Hebrew midwives to not allow any babies, that, any baby boys that are born to live. You kill all the baby born, boys that are born in Egypt and that will stop it. But a Hebrew slave woman gave birth to a boy that she hid in a waterproof basket and floated him in the Nile River where she knew the daughter of Pharaoh would come to bathe and would find him. That baby boy was named Moses. Eighty years later, as an 80-year-old man, he would lead the descendants of Abraham, the people chosen to provide the Savior out of Egypt. He would lead them back to the land God gave them through Abraham. And you know the story how Satan, you know, they're leaving Egypt and they think they've got their freedom, but Satan says, well, you know, once again, I'm going to end this right now. So they come up to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is in front of them, the army of pharaohs behind them to destroy them. And you know what God does. God says, okay, no problem. God parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. The army follows them. The sea comes back together and drowns them all. You've seen the movie. So that's what happens. Satan tries to destroy them once again, but God doesn't allow it. On their journey, now from Egypt to their home, the promised land, which should take a few days to get there, takes them 40 years because of their lack of faith and because of their disobedience, including Moses, he was also disobedient. They go around in circles all the time. They had no GPS in those days. By the way, how many of you have ever used your GPS in your car and it led you the wrong way, took you the wrong direction, took you around in circles? Yeah, that's happened as well to, to me. A trip, again, that should have lasted days, lasts decades, 40 years, so that God can allow the generation that left Egypt to die off, that doubted, that didn't believe. And so everybody who enters the promised land was born during the journey, or children during the journey. And during that time, God, that 40 years, that's the time that God, Moses goes up onto the, onto the mountain of Sinai and God gives them the law. And he gives them his law so that they could be governed in their nation, their civil and religious practices. And then it's during this time that the genealogy of the Messiah takes some interesting turns. Some things happen in his, and this is why you ought to study the genealogy because these are very interesting things to me. While the seed would stay in the family of Judah, there were some Gentile women who entered the picture, who were involved, who became Jesus' great-great-great-grandmas. One was a prostitute. 
named Rahab, whose life was spared from the destruction of Jericho because she saved the lives of the Jewish spies that came into Jericho before they took the city. Because she was kind to them and spared their lives, she was saved from the city's destruction. She was taken into the to the nation of Israel, they, they kind of adopted her as her own, and she marries a Jewish man from the tribe of Judah, a fellow by the name of Salmon. And Rahab and Salmon have a son. His name is Boaz. Boaz would marry a Gentile widow, a young woman by the name of Ruth. Do you know the story of Ruth? Boaz and Ruth have a son together, a son by the name of Obed. Obed has a son by the name of Jesse, and Jesse has a son by the name of David, who would become king of the Jews from the line of Judah. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? It didn't take long after finally getting in the land that God promised Abraham, however, that this nation began to forget God. And gradually, you read through the book of Judges, gradually they got to the point where the very last verse in Judges says this, everybody did whatever he wanted. It was chaos. It was anarchy. There was gross immorality. And so what they did is they said, you know what, our problem, God, is that we don't have a king. All the other nations around us have kings to tell us what to do, tell them what to do, to take taxes away from their people. We want a king. They weren't satisfied with God. They want a human king. So they get this guy by the name of Saul. He wasn't God's choice. He ends up finally dying. And then a shepherd turned warrior. David became king after being anointed by Samuel. And the scepter that was prophesied by Israel around his sons to Judah, the scepter was placed in the hands of someone from the line of Judah with David. Jacob's prophecy was filled in King David and his descendants and would ultimately be fulfilled in the rule of the Messiah. And then we go to the New Testament and we look at verses like Hebrews 7, 14 that explicitly traces Jesus' descent from Judah. It says, now it is evident... And something is evident, that means there is what? Evidence. It is evident that our Lord came from Judah. Well, where is that evidence found? It's found in the genealogies that are in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4. It's evident. Revelation chapter 5 verse 5 calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. Micah 5.2, that was written 700 years before Christ's birth predicts that he would come out of Judah and even names where he would born. Bethlehem Ephrathah, excuse me. You are small among the clans of Judah. You're just a tiny little town, little town of Bethlehem. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel from me. Now, it's not talking about David because David's been dead for hundreds of years. Somebody is yet to come from your tribe and his origin. Here's how we know he can't be somebody that's totally human because he says his origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Now, unlike what maybe your mother told you, mommy, where did I come from? Well, before you came to your daddy and I, you were a little angel in heaven and God sent you down with a, 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 what's that bird called? A stork and uh, dropped you off to us and that's where you came from. Um, Ain't how it happened, all right? None of us were angels in heaven. None of us began in heaven. We began when we were conceived on earth. Jesus, however, says here that he was from eternity. Uh, The promised seed of the woman that was made by God in the Garden of Eden was getting closer. And now that tribe of Judah is the royal family. But it has some more details. But there's a big problem with this tribe of Judah, we would think. Man, they're not necessarily good people. I mean, after all, David's immediate family and many of those kings who descended from him were messed up and dysfunctional and did some wicked things. David's son Solomon, who was who would succeed David? Where did, where did Solomon come from? Well, he was born to David's wife, Bathsheba. And how did she become David's wife? Well, you know the story about the adultery on the 
in the palace when he saw her bathing and he ordered her husband to be killed. That's where Solomon came from, the son who would succeed David in the line. Solomon would build the temple. That's a great thing. God says, I don't have a house. Everybody else got a house but me. Build a temple. So Solomon would build the temple. But Solomon himself had a horrible personal life with he had hundreds of wives and concubines in his harem. But still, here's the, here's the deal. Keep this, God has made a promise. And keep this in mind. Write this down somewhere in your notes. God always keeps his promises. Always. God's made this promise. And God's not going to stop the promise. And as he had done with Noah and Abraham and Moses, before God did with David, what did he do? He made a covenant between himself and the Jewish people through David, a contract. He, he reiterates the promise. And he promised to David, you're going to have the kingdom and your royal line will last forever. He says in 2 Samuel 7, verses six, verse 16, he says, your throne, David, will be established forever. But... We pause and we think, but wait a second, there have been interruptions. There have been times when that royal line was stopped. Solomon's two sons started the problem. They would divide the kingdom into two. There's a map up on the screen of the divided kingdom. It used to be one nation, now it's divided. In the north, in the green, you have what became known as Israel. In the bottom, in the purple, you have what became known as Judah. Or Judea would become known later, but Judah. And so they had these two kingdoms, each with their own king. Their kings are all descendants of David, but which one is the royal line? Which one is the line from which the Messiah would come? For the rest of most of the rest of their history, until Jesus would arrive, these kingdoms wandered away from God, and eventually they were taken captive, the northern kingdom taken captive by the Assyrians, the southern kingdom taken captive by the Babylonians. You know the story of Daniel. They would take them captive, take them to Babylon, and these nations, or this nation of Israel, the one nation, the people of Abraham forgot who they were. The God, by and large, the God who had promised them the land and the posterity have been abandoned. They're no longer in the land again. There's no posterity, they're slaves. And the prophets that God raised up during those times, and a lot of the Old Testament prophets, that's when they lived during those captivities. The prophets that they raised up during those times were either ignored or they were killed. Now, some were heroes in the nation. Some were loyal to their God but their resemblance as a nation, as the chosen nation, God's people, a light to the Gentiles was mostly lost. And it became a very dark time. Eventually, you know, they were allowed to, mostly allowed to return to their land. If you've read the stories, the Old Testament books of Nehemiah and Ezra, Nehemiah gets permission to take people back to the land, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And they've all been destroyed. Ezra's given permission to come back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so people went with them, and, and the, the Persian uh, uh, king was, was gracious in allowing them to go back. So they go back, and Nehemiah and Ezra document those migrations, but they were never truly free because even though they're in their land, they're still under Persia, they're still under Greece, they're still under Rome, so those other empires still reigned over them, yet the faithful in the family, the faithful in Israel continued waiting because God would raise up prophets and these prophets would say things that would, again, remind them of the promise of the Messiah. However, most would lose hope. There is this promise. If you'll look with me in Isaiah chapter 11, Find that in your Bible. I want you to follow along with me. These are very, page 631, these are very uh, well-known verses that are often read at Christmas time. And you know these, and then we'll flip back a couple pages to chapter 9. But you're mostly, uh, most likely familiar with this promise. Isaiah chapter 11, 
verse one, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. You ever cut down a tree and all you have left is a stump and then you look a year later and there's a little branch coming out of that stump. Have you ever seen that happen? Probably you have. That's not unusual. That's what he says here. The stump of Jesse, the father of David, has been cut down by their being taken captive by these other nations. There is no more line, there is no more king in the line of Judah. It's been cut off. But he says, here's what's going to happen. A shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. And from that shoot, a branch will eventually come up and bear, and from its roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, this one that rises up, this king, this Messiah, his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously. He will execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with discipline from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his loins. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze with their young ones and they will lie together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. None will harm or destroy another on my entire holy mountain. Now, when God speaks of his holy mountain, he's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. For, my, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. You've, you've heard that before. You've read that prophecy before. There's this other one. Turn back a couple pages to chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. And this, this is uh, in Christmas songs. Uh, Handel's Messiah has these words in it. For a child will be born to us, and, on the government, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion, his kingdom, will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What a promise. We sing that kind of stuff, the Messiah. We sing at Christmas time, for unto us a child is born. You know those words. All pointing to the coming Messiah. But there's a catch to it. If you think about this, okay, here's the catch. Here's what caused the Jewish people to stumble and continue to stumble today with the idea that Jesus Christ is Messiah. The child was born, but did that child, has that child yet brought this kind of peace to the earth where the animals that one preys upon now, they graze together where, where little children can reach their hand into a snake's pit and not be bitten. Have you heard of that kind of thing on this earth? And the answer is no. That's not come to pass yet. And that's what causes the Jewish people to stumble because Jesus never ruled like this. In fact, they expected their Messiah to come as a mighty warrior. They expected their Messiah to overthrow the empires that had ruled over them. And they expected the Messiah to sit at David's throne, not Herod, ruling the whole world. And on Palm Sunday, you know the story how they came, Jesus came through the streets sitting on a donkey and he rides through the streets and they proclaimed him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They called him son of David. They knew he is the Messiah. But what happened a few days later, their Messiah was murdered. Their Messiah was crucified. How could he be the fulfillment of the prophet's words when he died and it never came to pass? And how in the world would God let his Messiah be nailed to a cross by Gentiles, by Romans? 
They stumbled over that. They still stumble today, don't they? What they did not understand, what you and I see in the scriptures, what they did not understand was there's not just one advent. We celebrate advent, December. The coming is what advent means. We celebrate his coming to be born in Bethlehem. We celebrate the baby born in the, in the, uh, in the stable and played, placed in the manger. We celebrate the story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels. We celebrate his birth. Right before Easter, we celebrate his death and then his resurrection. That's the first advent. What they did not grasp and most still don't understand is he is still going to come again. There's a second advent yet to happen. Described in Acts chapter 1 as Jesus went up into heaven. You know that story ascended into heaven. And the disciples are all staring at him. And the angel says, what are you guys looking at? This same Jesus who has left you is going to come back in the same way. He's coming back in the clouds. Coming back to do what? Coming back to be king of kings and lord of lords and wonderful counselor, prince of peace, the everlasting father. He's coming back. His feet will land when he returns on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. He'll sit on the throne of David and reign for a millennium. That hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for that. By the way, how long have we waited? 2,000 years. Do you like waiting? You already told me no. They didn't realize that was going to happen. For 400 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they went through a dark time. There was no new word from God in Israel. There were no new prophets that spoke to give them hope. And I'm sure that as we saw with the story a couple of weeks ago with Simeon and Anna, many of the people had given up their hope. 400 years, that's longer than our history as a nation. There was silence from God. To help the Roman Empire, a man by the name of Herod during those 400 years, who was not a Jew, was appointed as king over Judea. And he and all his sons who, did, who came after him, and they were all called Herod, they were not in the line of David, so they could not have produced the true king. Well, you fast forward, if you go back from those prophecies that, Israel, that Isaiah gave, uh, you fast forward to when Herod, hearing from the Magi, remember the Magi, the wise men who came from the east? They came because they knew that the king of the Jews had been born. They go to Herod and say, okay, where's the new king of the Jews? And Herod think, is thinking, I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? Where's the king of the Jews? So he goes to the Jewish scholars who know the Bible, and he said, okay, tell me about this king of the Jews that's supposed to come. And they knew the prophecies of the Messiah. This story is found in Matthew 2, 6. And, they, and he goes to them, and they tell him, and they quote to him Micah chapter 5, 2. We read that a few moments ago. Well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. We know that. Once again, Satan says, I'm going to, do what I, I'm going to stop this. And so Satan, or Satan inspires Herod, to order infanticide in Judea, and he has all the baby boys under two years old in and around Jerusalem, or in and around Bethlehem, killed. What about baby Jesus, little Jesus? No, uh, because an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream before the soldiers get there to kill all the little boys and tells him, look, get up right now, get Mary, get the baby, go to Egypt where it's safe until Herod dies. And so once again, we see the seed of Genesis 3.15 again, spared miraculously. And then in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. All that's left of that temple. Anybody been to Jerusalem? Anybody in this room been to Jerusalem? Okay, one. We need to take a tour, Jenny, and we'll let you guide us, okay? Did you go to Jerusalem? Did you see the Wailing Wall? Sure you did. That's all that's left of the temple that Herod built. It's there, and, uh, and Jews go there every day. You see pictures of it up on the screen, but they go every day, the Jewish people do, to pray. And they write prayers on pieces of paper and put those papers in the cracks between the stones. And what are they praying for? Praying for Israel. They're praying for Messiah to come. Well, he's coming. They don't, they don't recognize it was Jesus who came, but he's coming. The Jews are scattered throughout the world, and for 2,000 years they have remained without a king. In fact, longer than that, probably 2,500 or more years. 
1948, however, an amazing prophecy was fulfilled when Israel again became a nation and inhabited their land, the land that was promised to Abraham. And they've got people always trying to take their land away from them. The, the Syrians tried 1967. The Egyptians have tried. The Palestinians are always trying. Now before the Messiah, Jesus returns to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that something has to happen first. And before he sits on the throne, the temple has to be rebuilt. Here's the problem. The location of the temple, all they have now is that one wall, but the location of the temple, there's something that's been built since then. And it's, it's a Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It's got to be removed so that the temple can be Rebuilt. Now let me ask you a question. You think they're just going to come in and, and demolish that mosque without any problems from their neighbors? No. There's going to be some, some tremendous warring take place. The temple must be rebuilt. Watch out for that in the news. Let me finish up with this, with this thought. And get this. This might be the most important thing of this series that I want you to understand. No one can ruin God's plans and promises. No one. No man. No Satan. No one can ruin God's plans and promises. All that history that we've covered the last three Sundays, all that warring between Satan and God brings us to where we'll be Christmas Eve, to the birth of Jesus, the promised seed of the woman. The woman being who? Mary. Because she was a virgin, he had no human father. His father was indeed God. All that brings us to the birth of Jesus, who is descended from David's royal line two ways. Joseph was not his father. Joseph was his adopted father, but Joseph was also of the line of Judah. So Jesus legally, through his adopted father, Joseph, is in the line of David to be king. But he's naturally in the line of David through his mother Mary because she's also descended from the line of David. So naturally, he is in the line to be king. The prophecies were being fulfilled rapidly and the plan was narrowed down to this virgin girl in Nazareth and to this baby born in the nondescript town of Bethlehem, the home of David. So let me encourage you, as you read the Christmas story, go back to Matthew 1 in the next couple days, and read his genealogy there. You'll find the names of some of these people we mentioned today. Go to Luke chapter 4 and read Mary's genealogy, Matthew 1 being Joseph's, Luke 4 being Mary's, because they prove his ancestry. Why, and sometimes, so many times, do you, don't, don't confess this to me, but do you ever, when you're reading through the Bible and you get to things like genealogies, kind of look at all those names that are hard to pronounce, and you just kind of skip over it? Do you do that? Don't do that. Why are those genealogies so very important? And here's why. Because they prove his ancestry. They prove that he is from the line of David. They prove that he belongs on the throne. They prove, listen to me, that Jesus Christ is no self-appointed Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all that prophecy. And his story started in eternity past when, and it was made known to the serpent and probably to Adam and Eve. And it was made known to Abraham and it was made known to Israel and it was made known to David. It was made known to the prophets and through all of those it was made known to the people of Israel. And because we have a Bible, it's made known to us today and it culminated in Jesus Christ. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, history is what? His story. It's all about him. I hope you'll be with us Christmas Eve, Tuesday. We'll have services at 2 and 3.30. And we're going to finish up this series. I'm excited to get there and, uh, and to share it with you and to celebrate Christmas with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Now, it may be that you're here today and 
Maybe it's your first time here, maybe you've been here before, but, and maybe it's because it's Christmas, the weekend before Christmas, and you decided, somebody said, come on, let's go to church. I don't know. Maybe you've been to church every Sunday in your life, but there might be somebody here today that would say, you know what? I've always had my doubts about the story. I've always wondered what's such a big deal about Christmas and Jesus and Mary and Joseph and the angels and the shepherds. And and I've just kind of gone along with it, with everybody else, but I can't ever say that I've really said, Jesus Christ, I realize this is all absolute truth and you, you are not only who you say you are, but you are what the Bible says all about you and, and it started from eternity past. And all this plan, and it's, and it's really fascinating for those of us who are Christians to read all this and hear all this and, and uh, to learn and, and to be excited that, that this plan just wasn't haphazard, that God and Satan were at battle, that there was going to be hostility between Satan and this plan, between Satan and the seed of the woman, all of that. And we see the hostility Why did God go through with it, especially with imperfect people like Abraham and and Noah and Moses and David? Why did he go through it with a people people that had, for the most part, abandoned him? And the answer is he went through with it because he loves you, because he loves me. And this plan was put into motion and this plan was kept by God and the promise came true because God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, his uniquely born son, that if anyone would believe in him, that means put their total trust in him, they would have everlasting life. And that's why Jesus came. That's why the promises. That's why God fought so hard for you and me. It's why Jesus went to the cross. And maybe today you're here and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I would, I would encourage you that right there where you sit, that you do that. God, I don't know a lot about it, but I believe that I want to receive Jesus Christ as my own Savior today. And just do that. It's an act of faith. Our pastors will be up front after this song and they'd love to come and talk with you. If you have questions, I'll pray with you. If today you're trusting Christ, I'd encourage you to come and speak to one of them and let them know. Father, bless your word. Thank you for the promises. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness because you loved us. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.